This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I am in Napa, California today for this episode of the podcast and sitting across from me in this small but bespoke built brew house uh, designed specifically for lager brewing is uh, Nick Gislason from Hanabi Lager Company. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you so much, Jamie. You've got a really interesting story coming out of the winemaking world, but your roots are on the farm in the Pacific Northwest, uh, and that, it's a fascinating story of even welding your own brew house here to <laughs> to make the lagers that you want to make. I can't wait to dig into that and kind of pick your brain for some of your approaches there. Before we do that, G&D Chillers, born in the Pacific Northwest from a lot of hard work and a singular goal, they've become the best damn chiller company in the world. Like you, G&D never settles. They're relentless and strive to be better every single day because they take pride in the work they do. Their craftsmen who know good enough just won't cut it. Visit G&D Chillers at CBC booth 3011 or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also meet the latest in the BSG Hop Solutions portfolio, Sativa. Strong expressions of stone fruit, floral, and resinous pine flavors and aromas define this blend crafted specially for use in hazy IPAs and other hop forward beers. Sativa is ideal for aroma, whirlpool, and dry hop additions to hazy and juicy IPAs or for any other hoppy styles where a combination of citrus, tropical fruit, and pine aromatics are desired. Go to bsgcraftbring.com to learn more or call 1-800-374-2739. So Nick, walk me through your history. And I don't just mean brewing history because I think you have an interesting agricultural country past that has fed into the kind of workmanlike approach that you take to these lagers and not just to the beers themselves, but even the way that you make these lagers. And, uh, and so, yeah, dig in a little bit to your own personal history. All right. Well, so I was born up in the San Juan islands in the Pacific Northwest and, um, grew up on a, I guess you'd say modern day homestead for lack of better term. Um, it was 60 acres, uh, that we moved out onto when I was really very young and nothing on it. It was just all forest, no house, no roads, no electricity, water, nothing. And, um, so I spent most of the time growing up, uh, developing that property. We built a small cabin at first and then, um, building roads and doing some logging, building a shop, um, and then a, a proper house later on. And, and so I grew up always really being very hands-on, I guess you'd say. Sure. Um, you know, everything from the excavating side and uh, forestry and logging to um, growing family garden, raising animals, um, electrical, plumbing, farm welding, kind of the whole program. Um, the life that urban dwellers now seem to uh, fetishize and, and pine after, but uh, yeah. <laughs> it is funny, full circle. Um, and so that's that was the beginning. And then, um, you know, I got interested in fermentation also at a pretty young age, actually. It was just this, uh, seemed like a magic almost in a way. So I had an uncle who was into home brewing since the 70s. And, um, and so he taught me to brew when I was... Oh, I don't even think I was 10, 11, 12 years old. I'd go over to his place and um, and work with him and help him out. And so by the time I was about 14, I was really interested to start to brew myself. And so um, I did and welded a small uh, little 10-gallon brewing setup like like so many people do with uh, kegs and, that are yeah, converted sure. and, and this kind of thing. And, um, but I always just like to brew for the community, you know, in those days, my parents, we worked out a deal that, you know, I was pretty young. And so they said, well, you can brew, but you have to give most of it to us and, <laughs> and to your grandparents smart, smart. <laughs> and uncles and aunts and, and everybody else. And, and so that was just always a fun project where I would brew beer for, um, like friends, weddings and different family events and. Uh, work parties is a common thing up there, you know, in a small community, a lot of 
like uh, you know, barn raising was was sure. a thing actually, a real thing, right. <laughs> a real thing. You'd call a bunch of people, and we'd uh, tip up these big old walls that were too heavy for just a few. So, um, would brew beer for things like that, and um, and growing up. Uh, I'd say when I was a middle or late teenager, I thought that um, brewing was going to be kind of life's path at that point. So um, learned to weld in the middle of all that. I worked in a couple different metal shops um, in those days. And then went off to college and studied engineering and started to work in a brewery. So I was up in um, Bellingham, Washington at Boundary Bay up there. And uh, so cut the teeth there in, in that cellar and, and just totally loved it. Yeah. Um, for, for obvious reasons, I think everybody probably listening knows all about. And it's just, it's so much fun. And, um, and so did that while I was in Bellingham. But then um, you know, I was really interested to get reacquainted with working outdoors and with agriculture um, growing up that way in the San Juans, it was just something ingrained in me that I needed to be working outdoors um, uh, with my hands as well as indoors. You know, I like the cellar work a lot in the, in the brewery for sure, but I was trying to find a way to get reacquainted with agriculture. Sure. And so that's where wine came into the program. And um, growing up with the family excavation business, we helped develop uh, San Juan Vineyards, which is on San Juan Island. Mm. And it was the uh, first winery uh, on the island. And and so there was really no, uh, what do you say, uh, like background knowledge. No one knew how to plant vineyards there. People knew a little bit about agriculture in general, but uh, not so specifically with grapes. Um, and so I worked with, there was a young French winemaker who they brought over from Champagne to develop this project. And he was young, he was in his twenties. I was a teenager at the time and got to work with him. And, um, you know, he was instructing us how to prepare soil and how we wanted things prepped to, uh, get ready for the vines to go in. And, and then I saw that he had this really interesting, uh, lifestyle in terms of he was, working in the vineyard side about half of his time and then working in the cellar the other half of the time. And, um, and I thought that seemed like a really interesting uh, balance. And so I just filed that away. That's when I was a teenager. And then uh, after college, uh, visions of that kind of came flashing back and uh, decided to, to pursue wine for a while just to see uh, what that was all about. So I did a little bit of traveling and working in uh, New Zealand and and back in the States, in uh, Washington, and down here in California, and and just fell in love. It was this perfect mm-hmm. blend of agriculture and actually getting to work with the, the raw materials to grow the raw materials, and then um, see them all the way through into the cellar. And it was just a, it just seemed like a great, um, great passion to, to pursue. So, so went headlong into that, um, but brewing's always been very near and dear to us. Sure, sure. So then you, you were working professionally in wine, ended up here in Napa. Um, you know, talk to me about getting deeper and deeper into that professional wine world. Yeah, so in Napa, um, I started out working in the mountains, so up on Howell Mountain, and um, and love that. It's definitely, uh, it's an interesting place to grow grapes because it's a little bit on the edge, like... Um, you're up out of the valley. The soils are really rocky. Um, there's a lot of unique challenges growing grapes up in the mountains like that. Um, but that was a lot of fun, and that definitely lit the spark. Uh, went to New Zealand, worked there, um, decided that I needed to maybe study wine formally if I was going to go as far as um, we were hoping that we could in terms of pursuing quality and and uh, the craft, and so went back to school. So came back to the states and uh, went to UC Davis over there, mm-hmm. and in the master's program and a graduate degree in winemaking and viticulture, and then came back to Napa and have more or less been here ever since. So working for a small producer um, in West Oakville called Harlan Estate um, at first, and then uh, transitioned over to Screaming Eagle, which is where I'm at now, over in East Oakville. Uh, just across the valley, and um, I've been there 11 years now. Yeah, you're now head winemaker for Screaming Eagle. Yeah, since 2011, I worked with a, a great mentor of mine named Andy Erickson. He was the the previous winemaker, and 
and I took over for his role, his duties in 2011. And Screaming Eagle uh, makes some wine that a lot of people seem to like. <laughs> oh, it's it's a great spot to grow grapes. I mean, the simple fact of it, it's just, you know, I'd, I'd tasted a lot of wines from around Napa. And um, I wasn't necessarily married to stay here, actually. Yeah. Um, as a Washington guy, was thinking to go back north and, and make wine up there, actually. Sure, sure. In the, in the Davis days. But then... Um, you know, once I tasted the wines from Screaming Eagle and once I saw the vineyard and tasted the different components of the vineyard, that was the interesting part for me. There is, it's a really diverse site for being only 40 acres, um, a tremendous diversity of components. And uh, in general, it's just, they they represent the style of wine I love, which is they have complexity, but also a lot of freshness, a lot of energy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and for those that aren't familiar, I, I was deliberately understating it, but Screaming Eagle is one of the most consistently highest rated wineries in California and uh, uh, continuously celebrated by uh, those uh, wine experts that uh, that love to celebrate great wine. And so uh, it, it's an interesting one. You come out of that and have this successful career as a winemaker for an incredibly well-respected winery. And uh, of course, uh, I wouldn't need to do anything else. And then here we are sitting in your brewery side project, which is a completely you know, different or kind of, well, I shouldn't say completely different. It's a, uh, a definitely a uh, complementary but also different kind of rhythm. I want to talk to you about how the inspiration behind this brew house again and your approach to brewing and how you built it all. Before we do that, a brewery might have 99 problems but your fruit supplier shouldn't be one. Old Orchard is already known for their quality concentrates, but they also pride themselves on consistent product and reliable supply. When brewers need assistance, Old Orchard is just an email, phone call, or even a text away. Based in Greater Grand Rapids, Michigan, better known as Beer City USA, Old Orchard is core to the brewing community. To join their fruit family, learn more at www.oldorchard.com brewers. Also, with nearly 20 years of innovation and experience, Brewmation specializes in electric, steam, and direct fire brew houses, complete cellar solutions, and automated controls for the craft brewing industry. From half-barrel to 30-barrel systems, Brewmation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs and a brewing style. Whether you're starting a new brewery, upgrading your cellar, or just need some parts to keep you up and running, Brewmation has you covered. Visit them at brewmation.com to get started. So, Nick, again, you don't need to start a brewery. You have a successful career as a celebrated winemaker now, um, working for one of the top names in the California wine business. Why start a brewery? <laughs> well, I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> but no, it's... Um... You have this beautiful rhythm where you can work <laughs> part-time outside and part-time indoors and, you know, and go with the seasons and, and now you're an industrial facility inside, you know, making beer and, uh, and while also still doing, you know, your primary job as a winemaker. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's um, I don't know. I've always been a builder, I guess. That's, yeah. that's kind of the brass tacks of it. I just, I like to be working on something all the time. Um, you know, it really is a passion. Um, and, you know, it is really complimentary and that is uh, the cool part about it, I think, um, from my perspective is that, you know, what we can do here throughout the year uh, really complements uh, ideas that we can bring into harvest in the winery. It just keeps us, uh, you know, very fresh on fermentation and, um, and that rhythm and then vice versa, you know, then every wine harvest uh, gives us a lot of food for thought in just a, a different context, a different uh, agricultural product that we're working with there, just grapes uh, versus grain. And and um, and so then we in turn have a lot of ideas coming off harvest into the brewery again for the rest of the year that uh, we can we can put into practice here. So it is it is like a push and pull. I feel like a sure, good, uh, sure. Why focus this brewery on loggers? And and I we should say like you have built this entire brew house just to build lagers. That is your intention to only brew lagers here. Yeah. So lager, um, you know, started out brewing ales. So in the Pacific Northwest, it was certainly, at least at the time, um, ale country for sure. So brewing strong, you know, powerfully flavored ale styles. And, um, and then after getting into wine, I guess there was just a, a shift in, in 
my palette, I guess, my wife and I's palette. We do this project together and we're both uh, winemakers and, and we just, um, you know, our palettes gravitate towards wines that are at the same time, uh, very complex, uh, but also fresh and vibrant. And so, uh, within brewing, it seemed like lager, uh, techniques, lager brewing is just a really excellent way to, to get after a style like that. I think there's potential for incredible complexity of flavor depth of flavor, but at the same time in a, in a, um, architecture that's really fresh and vibrant and refreshing, uh, leaves you feeling like very clean, very nice. And, um, it allows those small nuances of, uh, of agricultural production to kind of shine through. Absolutely. Yeah. To us, um, you know, we gravitated towards lager brewing about 10, 11 years ago now. And, um, you know, we've always been brewing all along after, uh, leaving it, uh, uh, professionally, we always would brew for the winemaking community, just whoever we lived around. Right. And, and um, it takes a lot of beer to make great wine. <laughs> that's the truth of it. Um, and so it was about 10, 11 years ago that we started to really hone in on just exclusively lager brewing. And, um, and it was just stylistically for those reasons, we felt like we could, uh, work with very special grains and then, uh, showcase them through the lens of lager. It just seemed like a neat way to, to parse out all the intricacy, the complexity of flavors, um, but in a profile that was really approachable for wide variety of people sure, um, and, and really fresh and, and clean and vibrant. Yeah. For the folks that are listening, they can't see the brew house that's, uh, that we're sitting in right now, but describe your process because you did literally weld a good chunk of this equipment, including the whole hot side of, uh, of your brew house. You welded it yourself. That's not a story that we hear from a lot of brewers out there, uh, in the world today. Uh, it's the, but that's an interesting element to this, you know, workmanlike approach that you take to loggers crafting each piece of the production puzzle so that it uh, can make the, the exact beers that you want to make. Yeah, it's it seemed like a I don't know to us it was just a natural, the natural way to do it I guess you'd say. <laughs> um, For a kid who grew up on the country doing everything himself, <laughs> and and so the project, um, you know, there's some other people involved that I think are are useful to know about as well, sure. just to give context. And so um, since about eleven years ago, um, I got involved with uh, JV Northwest up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, through winery projects down here, building mm-hmm. wine tanks and, and winery stuff. And there was a fellow I met up there named uh, Jared McClintock, and and um, I didn't know him at the time. And uh, he was uh, fairly new to JV, but then uh, very quickly uh, moved into basically being their lead brewery designer and was there for about a decade doing that. And um, so I get got to know him through uh, the wine tank side of it. And then, um, of course, we got together and, and drunk some wine and then started to talk about beer and brewing and um, very quickly realized that we had a lot of common interests um, in terms of styles of beer that that we like, in terms of just all the cool projects out there going on in brewing. And, um, and so we started to work together. And so I would come in and uh, work on brew house designs with him for, I guess you'd say, the like the trickier situations people who wanted to do things like decoction and and things like that and um and so we would get together and just uh you know rap about about design and we could go on i mean it'd be hours and hours and hours all night and about brew house design and it was just just a, a passion project for me a side project honestly and um and i've always loved it the process side of things but um, so got to know Jared over the years, and then he would slowly start to come down and work on uh, the pilot brewery with us. So before this brew house that we're sitting in today, we built a pilot that's it's basically a, a very similar rendition of of this. It's a five vessel uh, barrel and a half brew house that's uh, just dialed in for decoction and, and lager stuff like that. And so he would come down and we would brew on that system. And we'd be looking at these two cool different grains that we're working with and a lot from the Pacific Northwest, um, as well as elsewhere around the world as well. 
And it was just a fun way for us to get together and just talk about beer and brewing and wine and where they intersect. And, uh, and so that relationship developed and, uh, he's, he's heavily involved now in the, in the brewery today. And then through that, there's another fellow named Trevor who works in the shop up there. He's one of the lead fabricators, uh, for brew houses. And he became a good friend over the years as well. And so the three of us would have work parties <laughs> to build all this. And it was, I mean, it was just that it was a work, yeah. truest sense, a uh, work party, you know, it get up super early. raising the brewery barn and uh that was literally it it would be um just for the fun of it you know get up at yeah. four in the morning and come in and start banging on metal and have at it until the sun goes down and then uh, eat well and drink well and <laughs> do it again the next day and it was just a just a righteous fun time over the last five or six years that uh, the three of us have been kind of working on this and putting it all together it's a long process of production and build out to get here, but I guess you had the luxury of that just because it wasn't a full-time job and there wasn't that kind of pressure immediately to get up and running and start making something to pay off all the debt. Yeah, exactly. It was, you know, always has been a very grassroots project like that, um, slowly and surely and building almost everything ourselves and, and, um, it was a fun way to work in a lot of ideas like for Jared and I, you know, working on all these different brew houses all over the place. Uh, there's always some, some kernel of wisdom that you come away with, right. You know, commission a brew house, go through everything and uh, work with the brewer. And then there's always something like, you know, next time we'd make this little tweak and this little tweak and mm-hmm. you're always honing in on brew house design. And, and this is certainly a reflection of what we're sitting in here of, you know, years of that and talking to so sure. many people and, working on so many different brew houses and it's just a lot of little bits and pieces that have come together here uh, through that process. Let's talk through the brew house, actual brew house system and setup uh, and what you've built. Um, Obviously, again, people are listening, they can't see it, Um, you know, but talk about the kind of fundamental design and some of the decisions that you all made in order to, again, facilitate lager brewing through this system and really dial it in for that. So starting, I guess, on the hot side, uh, decoction has always been an important part of lager brewing for us and um, as well as uh, cereal mashing with, you know, potentially other grains um, than just barley. And so it's, uh, there's three mash kettles. And so that gives us a lot of flexibility in terms of uh, how we're decocting and um, how long and then also it gives us, um, there's a pragmatic component for uh, throughput as well. You know, when you're doing triple decocted lagers, um, these things take a long time. Yeah. So yeah. to have more mashing capacity is, is extremely useful for that. Um, so three mash kettles, and then uh, we transfer over to Louderton. And uh, Louderton has a big sight glass right in the front. And so we can see basically a full vertical cross section of uh, the grain bed. And, and that was because we, we knew that we wanted to work with a wide variety of grains. And um, in terms of just barley, some new varieties, uh, some very old heirloom varieties, I think that's been a you know, particular passion for us um, coming from like kind of agriculture background and, and grape growing and winemaking is uh, just a little geeky about finding varieties that Maybe they don't have the best yield. Maybe they're really hard to work with, uh, but maybe the flavors are just particularly interesting. And um, sure. And so we needed a, a very flexible brew house that would allow us to work with this wide diversity of grains. And um, to be able to see inside the louder ton physically is is really useful for that because you know these barley's and and the other grains they behave really differently. And with the way that we brew. We only do four uh, special batches in a year. So it's one per season, basically every three months. Uh, we pick a new barley that's um, our particular favorite, and we've worked on it on the pilot system for between, say, six and 18 months, kind of honing in how we want to approach it. And then we finally bring it into the big brew house here. And it's um, uh, since we're always changing like that, the ability to see inside what we're working on is incredibly useful so that we can be uh, adapting as we go. It's not like we're developing a recipe and sure. 
and getting to to brew it over and over and and hone these things in we mm-hmm. need to do it pretty quickly I, I mean i imagine for any release you're probably doing more than one batch and you know because you've got some bigger tanks here and so over the course of doing that you can learn some things and adjust on the fly what do you what are some i mean i'm curious because looking at this uh, you know sight glass that seems to stretch the height of a potential grain bed inside there um what are some of the things that you've seen noticed or been able to kind of learn and understand by watching how that loudering is happening well i guess a couple things first uh to really understand the behavior of uh your teague that's a big one um because every barley different in terms of uh, the teague that it throws and especially depending how uh, we choose to decoct it um, in terms of like the thickness and, and things like this. Um, the teagues can have pretty different uh, buoyancies, different behaviors. And to be able to just see where they are physically, are they sitting up on top of the grain bed very nicely or are they starting to migrate down inside? And, um, and so to be able to see that on the fly gives us a lot of ability to fine tune our raking, our pump speeds, things like this. Um, to deal with grains that might be uh, more or less tricky from, say, uh, the Teague standpoint would be one. Um, and then another would be, I guess, um, evaluating the the mill and the mill settings. And, um, you know, a lot of these barleys we work with, they're not the standard, like, nice, plump, kernel, modern varieties. Sure, sure. Some of them are a lot more heterogeneous than that or, you know, maybe slimmer um, and to be able to just see the integrity of those husks and uh, how much that they're, they're maintaining an open porosity or not is uh, really useful to, to adjust the processing for that particular batch, but then also the mill settings for the following batches that yeah. come after. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating to, to be able to get that granularity right. Most, of, most brewers are looking down at the top of their uh, louder. And it's uh, not as much information as some people might like to have. Sometimes the eyes are your best tool. You know, the eyes and the nose, I feel like, um, you know, still that's that's our most, most important tools in here. There's, uh, of course, we have, there's flow meters and all the various other tools, right? And right. Looking at temperature, but you can just learn so dang much with just your nose and just your eyes, you know? It's, there's a lot to that. Sure, sure. There's a fair amount of stainless steel piping in here, as well as, of course, hoses to connect everything to each other. Um, yeah, from the brewing process out, you know, are there any specific uh, concerns with the way that you've designed your kettles in order to brew the lagers that you brew? Well, um, one thing about uh, triple decoction is that it takes so much time. And so we really wanted to not waste much time for um, things like transfers and uh, cooling and things like that. So everything is uh, relatively oversized, I guess you'd say. So it's Mm. a nominal seven-barrel brew house, and there's uh, mostly three-inch piping all over everything. Right. So when it's time to send it the louder ton, you know, that transfer takes place in about 50 seconds because um, we have a long day of decocting ahead and behind us, and we need to, you know, move on (laughs) to the next step of the process. So, um, so everything's built to be relatively quick, um, very easy to kind of understand and, um, keep organized with a complex process, you know, doing multiple decoctions in a day with multiple batches, um, just need to keep things really orderly and organized. And so hard piping was uh, really useful for that. Um, cooling for sure. Um, heat exchange to be able to knock down as cold as we want to, um, as quickly as we need to is really important. So giant heat exchangers always help. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Sure. Moving from the hot side to the cold side, uh, you know, you've got a blend of cylindroconical fermenters and some horizontal fermenters here, which it seems like you use in concert with each other. Talk to me a little bit about that. Um, you know, certainly, both of those things are, are used extensively by top lager brewers, depending on where they are. And, and everyone has very uh, closely held, strongly uh, felt opinions about how they ferment lagers because it's such an important part of the piece. Yeah, certainly. I think, um, you know, it, it's really just uh, mostly, I'd say, yeast and lees dependent for us. So, like in white winemaking, just as an example, 
Um, there's a lot of time and attention paid to lees and lees management for building things like a texture in, in white wine and especially Chardonnay as an example. And, um, so just depending on the yeast strain, some strains we use, uh, we're very happy with, uh, how they behave in upright tanks. And then other strains, we just feel like the, the lees expression is, um, is just better in uh, horizontal tanks so it, it just depends on you know the strain flocculation how happy they are to hang out in the tank for extended periods of time and what that's going to bring us in terms of uh, texture and weight in the beer cool cool let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the individual expressions uh, and it's an interesting one because each one of the releases that you've had so far is a separate distinct individual beer and there's there's not a flagship to reference here because that's not the uh, the way that you approach beer. Um, but I want to talk about ingredients and I want to talk about some of the then individual yeast malt uh, expressions in those beers. Before we do that, there's nothing easy about brewing beer. It's an intricate, time-consuming art. The last thing you need to face is a recall or a contamination that can hurt your pride and your pocketbook. Clarion lubricants meet strict purity and performance standards to help you make your system 100% food safe. That's protection for your equipment and your beer. So make the switch to Clarion and ensure your system is running smooth and safe. Go to clarionlubricants.com to learn more. Like I was saying before, barley in particular or grains, or you, as you mentioned that, in fact, I should say, uh, is a key component to this where so many brewers are very focused on hops, even lager brewers focused on hop selection, noble hops, or even the, you know, the specific origin of their noble hops on specific farms, uh, you know. Uh, in Germany or in America, that you know, that is not a big focus for you. You focused on the, your agricultural piece of focus is on grain, and you use lager as a canvas to kind of express that. Talk to me about uh, some of the ways that you've uh, been able to express these different origin grains in some of the the lagers that you've made so far. So yeah, for us, uh, definitely the interest has been in grain, um, and is. Um, I think lager is a is a really good approach to showcase those flavors uh, in a way. And it's been an exciting time, I think, in the grain world recently, just from the standpoint, you know, you think 10 years ago, um, especially in North America here, there's just, there were not a lot of small grain farms and small uh, malting companies that were able to handle these small batches. And so, you know, 10 years ago, that was just barely becoming a, a possibility and certainly every day becoming uh, more and more real and, and more and more feasible. And so for us, it's just been a lot of fun to get to work with people to, to um, you know, both discover really old varieties and then uh, also some modern varieties that, that maybe have, a, let's say, less focus on... Um, on big yields and disease resistance and and these factors of course they're really important but uh, but so is flavor so <laughs> I think we're coming into a time when uh, barley that's specifically selected for flavor above or at least in concert with things like yield and things like disease resistance is becoming uh, more real um, so just as an example uh, we work up in the Skagit Valley a lot, Skagit Valley malting up there is, we worked with them since basically uh, their inception in the beginning. And, um, and so there's some cool varieties that they're growing and working with that, um, that we use with the Hanabi project here. Um, and then also, uh, recently became acquainted with a grower in Eastern Washington over in Palouse County. That's, uh, particularly focused on heirloom varieties and so they're working with um, like thousands of years old barleys, um, some extremely cool stuff up there. Um, very small scale. There's not really much of it available. You know, we're talking in the handful of tons right here right. and there. Um, but for for our project, that kind of stuff is perfect. Um, sure, if sure. We, if we can only get two tons, that's, that's just fine. We can work yeah. with that. 
Um, I, I love the kind of creativity that's coming out of that Washington agricultural world. And we've certainly talked about that with, um, you know, in a grain sense in Saison with the folks from Fair Isle and using purple Egyptian barleys and others. And we talked about it with uh, Garden Path Fermentation also on the part on the on the podcast, Ron and Amber, uh, again, using those because they're in the Skagit Valley and making uh, making. Uh, their beer only with ingredients from that uh, Skagit Valley, maybe some hops that don't come from there. But uh, mm. um, but you're right, this beer making uh, and the value um, added by making beer with these ingredients has enabled some of these agricultural producers who have a passion for these things that they love to grow but might not have found a commercial market for it. It supports their kind of nerdy love of that agricultural piece. And it's, it's such an interesting interplay to think about beer as this means of supporting this historical approach or, you know, uh, legacy grains, heirloom grains and whatnot, um, and creating a market for these things that otherwise might not have a viable commercial market to support their growth. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, it's definitely a really exciting time, I think from that standpoint, because, you know, chefs and bakers have, for instance, been pretty interested in these uh, unique varieties of wheat and spelt and other grains for the kitchen or, or for baking. Um, but I feel like in beer, it's only just coming recently here, you know, in the last five years, maybe 10, maybe more like five. And um, it's, I think, just going to be more possible as we go along here is, you know, the more that it's supported, the more that people are interested in these varieties, the more that these farmers can put those in the ground and, and bring back a lot of varieties that maybe their grandparents grew. Like in the case of New Eastern Washington, there's a lot of growers in the far east over there in Palouse County that, um, you know, they, they grow commodity varieties because that's what keeps the lights on. But a lot of these guys have uh, some old heirlooms that maybe their grandparents had been growing and handed down to them. And, and they still grow just a little bit, you know, on the side, just for personal use, for fun. Um, and they weren't at least until very recently here and, and maybe, maybe not even still, um, you know, commercially viable grains, just the yields are a lot lower. Sure. They're, sure. they're harder to work with, you know, the combines, they don't like them as much, you know, it's harder to, to harvest grain like that sometimes, but at the same time, uh, the nutrition, the minerals, um, the flavor is, can be just incredible, like very rich for older grains like that and it's it's a travesty to lose some of these things i've I've, you know spent time in cider orchards and they're facing the same thing that uh uh, or apple orchards that this consumer demand for you know red delicious apples that are bright and waxy and bold and red has led to uh, i mean there are so few baking apples pie apples and cider apples out there but you know some of those growers have just kept doing it because they had a small cadre of of consumers that wanted to make their pies with those tart apples and those they're ugly and funky um and they've they've kept them going and now this market wants more and more of those and uh thank goodness there was somebody keeping that kind of agricultural strain alive so that those things are now available to us and in this kind of case it's beautiful to see that these growers are maintaining some of those things just for the love of it and uh it's now the balls in the brewer's courts to find a way to make some of them interesting and tell a story about them in order to, to again, help give them a, a bigger uh, leg up on life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these they're just cool grains, you know, from the agronomy standpoint. Um, older varieties, they've always been interesting to me because, you know, they were developed in a time when um, we didn't have modern fertilizers. We didn't even necessarily have irrigation is um is more modern agronomy tools right and so a lot of these were they're bred to be fairly hardy and uh and i feel like they have a a demeanor that's kind of like that like they're some of them rustic i think in a very interesting pleasurable way like very flavorful full of character they definitely have personality if you know what i mean right it's interesting to work with those, and they are very different than a lot of the modern varieties. There's certainly a cost involved. Um, you know, you're, I'm sure your cost for some of this malt is four or five times what it might be for a more industrial available malt. But 
um, you know, when you're producing a product that people are willing to see that value in and pay for, um, you can make those economics work out. I would love to talk a little bit about some of the specific barley varieties that you've been working with and on why you find them kind of compelling, you know, walk through some of the individual beers and, uh, and some of those, you know, the ways that you've coaxed interesting flavors out of, uh, out of those grains. Yeah, sure. So let's see. Um, I think, so one variety that uh, we're still working with on the pilot scale, we haven't done a Hanabi release with it, but when the very first sacks of Chevalier came into the country, um, back this would have been 2013, 14, I think somewhere there, um, that first pallet, we had some of, the, some of that grain. And, and um, I think just a really interesting historic variety like that. And um, still, I love that, I mean, even though the brewery only launched in 2020, it was 20 that many years ago that you were still sourcing these things and working on these piloting projects. Yeah. The pilot's been going for a while. You know, we uh, built that it was around 2010, somewhere there. And, um, and just strictly designed around decoction lager brewing. And, and, um, so it's been a platform just to, to work with these varieties when maybe all you could get was two bags, you know, 100, 200, 300 pounds. And, um, not something that you could do a commercial release, even if you wanted to, but yeah. it was a chance to get an early peek at things like that and uh, start to get to know them a little bit. Sure. So Chevalier. So Chevalier is one that's um, in the pipeline still. Um, and then from up in Washington, there's a variety. It's not an old one, actually, but it's uh, it's a newer variety, but it does have, uh, we think, fairly compelling flavor and demeanor, and it's called Franson. And so it's grown um, on east, eastern Washington as well as western, originally just the west side, which is mostly what we're familiar with, and it growing in those conditions. Um, but that one's been really interesting, just a you know really cool, like uh, hay kind of flavors, um, like quite rich body, but at the same time, uh, very fresh. Um, so we've used uh, Franson quite a lot. Uh, we're in the process, uh, well, I guess before for the latest that we have in the tanks here. Um, some European varieties as well, which are, you know, they're not nearly so rare as some of these others. Uh, they're more widely available, but still, I guess you'd say relatively niche. So varieties like Barca would sure, be an example. Sure. Um, and, you know, we use varieties like that and very classic, very delicious European varieties. Um, and, you know, really the pool that we have to choose from right now, you can basically count the varieties on almost two hands, maybe three hands. It's, there's really not that many individual varieties that, um, you know, that are grown and kept separate and, um, and that we can brew specifically lager beer with. And so that number is growing by the day, which is why it's a pretty exciting time, but it is still a pretty small pool that we're pulling from. So anyhow, um, so Barca is, is another one. And then in the tank, actually, we have a variety that's, um, I would say, you know, I'm still going back and forth with the grower, and I, I believe this statement to be true, that this is uh, the oldest variety of brewing barley that's being grown commercially uh, today. So it's about 7,000 years old. It's a Viking variety. Uh, they grew it um, around uh, Nordic countries since a long time ago, uh, for both food and for brewing beer. And, um, and then today, the only place that this variety is called bear, uh, B E R E is really grown commercially is, um, up in Washington state and also in the Orkney islands off the North of Scotland. Mm-hmm. And, um, I first got interested in this variety about five or six years ago. And, at the time, the only place in the world that it was being grown at really any scale other than like for seed bank purposes, like a couple of rows or, you know, a square meter of, of area was in the Orkney Islands. And even there, only about 15 acres. So that was world supply of this really old mm. variety. And and there's a whole uh, culture around it there. So it's a big deal to, and, you know, harvest festival every year. And, and um, it's like this really uh, revered heirloom variety that uh, they've held on to in the Orkney Islands there. And so uh, we, so there's a grower up in Washington that um, 
basically left the family farm when he was young. So sixth generation grain farm in the Palouse County. And, um, you know, hard to make a living growing commodity grains at several hundred acre scale. It's just a tough road, you know? Sure. And so they, uh, he and his brother left to pursue other careers. And, uh, specifically the brother went off to be a professor in uh, grain and spent most of his career gathering heirlooms from around the world. And so traveling to Europe, to North Africa, all over the place, gathering heirloom, wheat, barley, um, spelts, different things, and then uh, bringing them back. And a lot of those ended up on the family farm. And so they're growing um, a wide variety of these cool grains. And some of them are are working and some of them aren't. And it's a process of discovery. Um, and so Bear, uh, I, I first got interested, say, five, six years ago, um, the only place to find it was Scotland. So figured, well, maybe someday in the distant future, we'll get a handful of seeds over here to, um, to get to one of our grower friends who can build that up. And then maybe four or five years, we'll have enough beer that we could actually brew a commercial beer with. And, uh, you know, that was like a distant idea, uh, at the time. And then only about Four or five months ago, uh, the idea kind of came back and um, and bit us, and we just got hot on the hunt to try to <laughs> to try to at least get the process right. going because it would take so much time. You know, we knew um, no better time than now to get going on that for a variety like that, and so um, started to make some calls and found some seeds in a seed bank out in the Midwest, and so I gave them a call and they said, "Oh yeah, we have a little bit of bear." And, um, and I, you know, how much, <laughs> oh, well, we have about five grams we could sell you and okay, well, that's, that is a start, you know, like a teaspoon of seeds. And so then a couple of days later, um, called them back and just to talk a little more about it. And she said, you know, I mean, you seem really interested in this variety. Why don't you call the grower that we actually got it from and gave me a name and number for fellow up on, uh, Salt Spring Island of all places. <laughs> and so it was just funny when she said that because um, coming from the San Juan Islands, Salt Spring is just uh, 20, 30 miles north of us up in the Canadian Gulfs. And um, oddly, the first place I ever got brewing ingredients from as a 14-year-old was up there sailing around with the folks and came back to the boat with an armload of uh, barley and hops. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? <laughs> oh, we're going to brew beer. <laughs> Um, so it was strange to be led back to that island to in search of this bear grain. So called that guy and um, told him the story and looking for some bear. And he says, well, I have a little bit more. I could sell you maybe 50 or 100 grams. But who you really want to talk with is the guy I get it from. And he's on the other end of Salt Spring Island. And his name is Ghetto Yogi. <laughs> you should call Ghetto Yogi. Ghetto Yogi. Ghetto Yogi. Um, he's apparently been a big fan of bear for a while. So, I, you know, all right, we'll get a hold of ghetto Yogi. And, um, does he grow anything other than grain? Cause it, with a name like that, it kind of sounds like it. <laughs> you never know. I you know. never know. Hey, hey. Passion is passion. <laughs> and, um, and so get a hold of him and he says, well, yeah, I have a little bit more than that, but maybe a kilogram. And so that's still, you know, we're incrementally building up here. Right. And, uh, but even still, that's several years away from having enough to do a, a proper Hanabi brew here. And, and so that happened and we were just, uh, planning how to get that barley, uh, down here across the border and into the hands of some growers so that we could build it up, which is a process in and of itself. Um, it's fairly arduous, but, um, we were ready to go down that path and pretty excited about it. And and I stayed late at uh, work one night up at the vineyard there. And I just had a hunch, you know, and you just have a feeling that you should be doing something and had a hunch I needed to be digging some more for this grain. And and so uh, I go cruising around out there on the Internet this uh, late evening and and I find this PDF file just floating around out in the ether. And it's talking about a heritage grain festival out in eastern Washington and um, in these like very small towns, you know, very remote areas. There's, it's just not, not a lot of people out there. It's fairly remote in some of these areas, but um, there was a heritage grain festival out there and it listed 
a whole bunch of different grains that people had grown and then given to some local bakers and brewers. And I think some of it was, you know, like homebrew scale, very small scale. But, um, but, uh, on this flyer, sure enough, I see bear and it lists the name of the farmer who grew it. And I said, okay, so surely somebody in North America must be growing at least some appreciable quantity of this grain. And um, so immediately went uh, down that rabbit hole and uh, got a hold of the farmer. And um, he said, all right, we need to talk. <laughs> he said, there's a lot of small circles that um, that's going to be pretty fun to get into. And and uh, without, you know, belaboring and going uh, too deeply into that rabbit hole, because there's chapter one and then there's chapter two. We can talk about chapter one. Chapter two, we'll have to wait until <laughs> a future uh, time, but uh, a very exciting one. And so, um, so anyhow, we talk and, and he says, uh, yeah, the bear, we, we brought it over years ago and have been slowly building it up. And, um, and how much do you need for a Hanabi release? I said, well, if we could do, you know, a few tons or two tons, something there, that would be, um, that would be incredible. And he just says, I have it. He says, I have it in the, out here in the barn and, um, it's yours. And so it was all of a sudden within a very short period of time, we went from, you know, considering five grams of seed and building up over four or five years or more, um, to all of a sudden being able to work with this, this really old grain. And, um, a lot of my family background is Icelandic. And so I was particularly excited, I guess you'd say to work with a, like a heritage variety from that area. And so uh, we immediately got that into the pilot brewery and have been uh, just working really hard on that since, I guess it's been February now, uh, once we we first uh, got some down here. And then uh, actually the beer that's in the tanks right now that we're sitting next to is a upcoming release of that particular barley. So we're excited about that one. That'll be, <laughs> that'll be a cool beer. How's it taste? Well, we'll just have to give it a try. <laughs> oh, from your sensory and your piloting, you know, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, um, the thing about that variety is that, um, it's, it's weighty. Like it has a lot okay. of weight. And the only thing I can compare it to, if you think about, um, like white burgundy Chardonnay is the best comparison I can make where you have this really solid mid palette. And with a, if you could ascribe a color to it, it would be uh, yellow. Like the the nature of the flavors are kind of yellow in nature, mm-hmm. and so it has very strong mid palate. These really like hay and also some earthy elements, um, but then it finishes very fresh and very crisp. And that's that's kind of the magic balance, you know. And the best Chardonnays that we like, it's you know that's what you're striving for, like weight and presence and density, intensity, but then finishing very clean and very fresh, very long. There has to be a, a certain kind. I mean, there, there's a wonkiness to all of this, but then there's also a risk piece of it too, because you've spent years trying to hunt down this barley before you finally find it. Mm. And there's also a chance that it doesn't create beer that tastes the way that you want it to taste. Absolutely. And you know, that's a real possibility. And, uh, you know, there's been some that have come and gone like that. And that's, um, that's the nature of the beast. And that's what makes the project. I think it keeps us pretty engaged and interested is because, uh, they're not all wins for sure. And that's the role of that pilot brewery. And we're uh, turning that thing all the time. So we do, um, a Hanabi release here only once per season. So every three months, full scale batch, but then the pilot that's turning all the time. They're you know, batches, batch after batch after batch through the pilot. And, uh, we might work with something for between say six months and a year and a half, maybe more. And, um, and ultimately we sometimes decide, you know, it's just, it's just not it. It's not going to work. It's not going to reflect the, uh, you know, the, the pleasure that we want out of these beers. Cause at the end of the day, it's, you have, I think two, two ways to look at, varieties like this and i think it's true in the wine world as well as with uh with grain and beer is there's the academic approach or are you pursuing pleasure and for us it's certainly the pleasure you know the academics yeah. is fun on the backside, but um at the end of the day it's just trying to brew beers with the most pleasure that we can 
possibly work out. Pure hedonic approach. Yeah, no, that's uh, it's it's kind of fascinating. How many pilot batches might uh, you do before you lock in something for a full scale Hanabi release? Um, depends on the grain, but I'd say anywhere between. Oh, I guess I should say it depends how familiar or unfamiliar sure, we are with sure. the variety. Um, if we've brewed other styles of beer with it for a lot of years, then uh, maybe we do two renditions, let's say, of um, mm-hmm. of a lager for Hanabi here. If it's a grain that we already somewhat know and have experience with. If it's something brand new, um, then it could be anywhere between, I don't know, say three and six really never beyond six because mm-hmm. at that point we've either decided either go or no go. yeah it's yeah. not it's gonna work or it's not gonna work and um so maybe the average is between uh, i don't know three and four some somewhere sure there. sure no, that's interesting because i mean obviously with a quarterly release schedule and the idea that well you're only brewing you know so rarely uh it sounds on the surface as if you know there's this piece of lager brewing where continuing to brew and iterate and improve is certainly a key component of of that in the history and tradition of lager brewing uh and you're doing that you're just it's not happening at a commercial at the release level it's happening on that kind of earlier stage pilot level where that that work is going in and and that dialing in happens it's uh it's interesting from our you know to to hear it that way uh yeah and understand that yes yeah that that background is being uh being done yeah and that's always been a fun part of this project is you know the history of uh working through these interesting varieties so we get um when it's time to brew those pilot batches, get, we get together a little work party of winemakers. And um, and it's fun because, you know, it's a group of people that they love beer. They're not brewers, um, but they want to uh, learn more about it. And and so it's fun for to get a group together like that and be looking at grain instead of grapes with a really similar um, techniques at the end of the day. You know, winemaking and brewing, it's in some ways different, but in a lot of ways, not honestly. And there's a lot of similarities. And, and, um, so over the years, those pilot batches have been just groups of winemakers and, um, a lot of them often international. So Napa is a place where, um, a lot of people come from around the world in wine to come and learn what's going on here. And so there's people from every wine region of the world in South Africans, French, you know, uh, Italian, Spanish, New Zealand, uh, just literally everywhere. And then um, we get to know these people. There's um, in the wine world, this uh, component of traveling early in everybody's career. It's um, it's called a stage, right, or internships. But they're a lot more than that. It's usually professional winemakers that have they studied and have graduate degrees in winemaking and some, say, several years, five years experience. And then you go travel and, um, and just to pick up different techniques, learn different ways of doing things. And uh, Napa is particularly a hub for travel like that. A lot of people come here. And so with these pilot brews, it's often a fairly international group, people coming from all over and bringing, um, you know, like stylistic input or commentary on these grains. And that's always pretty interesting, I think, to cross compare in terms of like when we're talking about palate and we're talking about structure of beer, the phenolics, the the protein, the colloidal aspects of the structure. Certainly there's a, a lot of input from the winemakers, which is just fun to Oh so yeah. So you just ideas. focus group your your loggers on, you know, top winemakers that are traveling to Napa. Sure. sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. All in good fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure everyone benefits from that, including including those winemakers. <laughs> um, you know, for for brewers out there who aren't winemakers, um, you know, who uh, want to employ or develop those kinds of uh, that skill and breadth to what they do, um, well, you know, what what kind of uh, learning and development would you suggest for them to, to build that broader palette of being able to approach brewing from a winemaker perspective? Oh, I don't know. It's, it's just one of those things. It's, I think, you know, I've always been a generalist. That's kind of the way I think about all this stuff, honestly. And what brought me into winemaking was a, a pretty generalist background and just 
like all the the nuts and bolts of making wine it's just generalized kind of farm skills right how to build things how to use eyes and ears and and then it's um kind of combining this technical with the artistic right brewing winemaking cooking it's all any really any art form is the same combination music is the same way this combination of technical knowledge and and skill but with the creative and the artistic as well and so you know i don't know that winemakers have anything in particular you know to offer other than it's just we work with a different agricultural medium that's all and um you know when i was first uh learning to become a brewer, I was reading a lot of wine literature to uh, cross-pollinate and then vice versa when I was becoming a winemaker, reading a lot of brewing literature. And I think there's a lot of knowledge and experience that can go that direction. And so, you know, I think to me, it's just a, it's just a matter of reading broadly and talking to people broadly and definitely outside of uh, the core field. At least for me, I find that um, always very inspiring, I guess you'd say, you know, I'm talking with a brewer and I'll have ideas like, oh, that's something that we could use in the winery. And then vice versa, talking with winemakers, ah, oh, that's a kernel of something that we could maybe try out in the brewing world. And, um, and then same thing with chefs, you know, they're doing, th- and bakers, there's uh, bits of knowledge there that I think are really uh, cross compatible. So I think that's all. It's not like there's anything, uh, you know, magic about winemaking. It's like there's no secrets. It's just, <laughs> it's just a different, different agricultural material, and and some of the principles that are true with grapes are also true with grain, and vice versa. So I think that's that's really all. Sure, sure. No, I think being engaged on that broader subject of fermentation, ingredients, agriculture, you know, and across all of these expressions that it takes in terms of pleasurable products from beverages to, to baked goods to, to everything else, you know, helps and being consciously engaged as you're tasting and uh, enjoying these things and being able to articulate what makes those interesting or compelling. And, uh, you know, it's part of that, that constant process that we're all engaged in or should be engaged in if we are making things that hope uh, or ascribe to a similar level of, uh, you know, pleasure, sophistication, uh, you know, a compelling nature that we're going to create for people. But I digress. Let's, uh, what's the big picture kind of goal for Hanabi? You know, clearly you've got your primary employment as, uh, you know, winemaking and Hanabi is this passion project that you all are maintaining on the side, what, uh, what, what do you, how do you see this going and how do you see those things working, uh, you know, in the next few years? Well, I think, uh, the intention is that we always want to keep this project small enough that, um, it's our own hands turning all the valves, directing, uh, grain, milling grain. Like we want to be extremely hands-on forever with it. And so that's going to definitely limit the size and um it's just you know as as a builder that's just where my passion is in all this is that um is it a business yeah of course but um but my passion in it is to work with special grain and to brew things that are compelling and and um for us that's a hands-on process here so it's always going to be small it's always going to be a pretty grassroots little project here and just a forum to get us together with um, other brewers and winemakers and just uh, explore the craft. You know, it's really all about that. That's it. It's just, a, it's an exploration in a way. It really is. It's, it's working our way through grains that uh, some of them uh, we know and we're introduced to and and then some uh, we don't even know what's coming. You know, there's some, some varieties that we haven't met yet that I think will be pretty exciting coming down the track. We'll be here ready for them. The The most fun part of my job is talking to people that are incredibly passionate about what they do and uh, that can wonk out on those pieces. And it's been fun to talk to you about uh, getting wonky on these things. Um, I appreciate the time that you spent with me. G&D Chiller's goal is to be the best damn chiller company in the world. Sativa from BSG Hop Solutions captures citrus, pine, and tropical fruit notes. Old Orchard prides themselves on reliable product and consistent supply. Brewmation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your need and make your system 100% food safe with Clarion Lubricants. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button, 
If you're a pro brewer or even if you're a consumer, check out our all access subscriptions that combine the magazines along with uh, online content like the classes that we've been filming this week out here in California with amazing breweries like Firestone Walker, Russian River and more. Um, some really exciting stuff coming down the pipeline through through that all access approach. Um, Nick, if people want to learn more about Hanabi Lager Company, where do they find you guys? Well, we have a small website, hanabilogger.com. And uh, so there's some information there. There's an email that comes directly to my wife and I. So um, you can reach us there. And we're always happy to chat about uh, really anything at all brewing related. <laughs> it's, a, it's a passion. Well, thanks for talking with me today. Cheers. Thank you so much. Cheers, Jamie. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.